Bob, just as he left from up here, reached up and he shook my hand and he said, the Lord be with you. And I said, and and with you too. (laughs) Um, And I mean that seriously, that as God hopefully will speak through me and use me to share things that I felt him impressing upon my heart, that um, he would do that, but he would also allow you to receive his word. So let's pray towards that end. Lord, we, we ask that you will use me in whatever capacity and ways that you choose at this time. And I ask that those who are listening would hear your words, that they would understand clearly what it is that you would want to accomplish in their lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The, um, in the scripture readings, um, yesterday I had the privilege of being at the district conference and there were any number of different um, pastors and people sharing. And that's what, it's interesting seeing them get into a district conference, you got all these pastors gathered together and they all have great things on their hearts to share. And it, it was really a neat experience. It can go on and on at times, but yesterday it was well, um, it served well its purposes as although there was a lot of business discussion going on, there was an awful lot of great godly challenges and uh, praises and requests going before us as well. And one of the gentlemen shared um, and referred to Peter and and, and Christ walking on the water. And it it hit me. I thought, you know, that's exactly some of what I was wanting to speak towards. And so uh, by the grace of God, I was able to really look at that and, um, and I believe implement some thoughts from that as well. And so in Matthew chapter 14... Um, it's just a piece of the, the passage where Christ comes walking on water. And I want to highlight that as we talk about the hand of God, the hand of God. So Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to pick up at verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. They said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? Now, there's a lot of things that go on in this little piece of scripture. But one thing certainly we see, Jesus is reaching his hand and saving Peter. Saving him from what? You know, is he going to drown? Well, maybe. It's a stormy evening and could possibly be a physical salvation, among other things. But I really believe it is a, a lot more of a salvation and rescue that's going on in Peter's heart and mind. Peter's ambitious. Peter is spontaneous. And he will go and do things. And as you see his life from this point forward as well, you will still continue to notice that he just gets out there and goes right away. And he doesn't hold back very easily the things, his ambitions and things. 
And so Peter, as he gets out on, of the boat and he walks out there, a couple things worth noting. One is Christ is far enough away that they weren't sure it was Christ. So it's not like he's a few feet from the boat. We have to understand that. They're wondering, is it a ghost? What is it? They couldn't see him clear enough. And there's exclamation marks as they're communicating back and forth. So they're shouting out to Christ and he's returning back. So however far it is, Peter hops out of the boat, climbs down, walks on water, starts to sink, and he cries out. And he's now gotten close enough to Christ that Christ can just reach down and get a hold of him, save him. Now, the question ultimately is, now, what happens next? We don't know exactly what happens next, but it's, I just, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm a Bible major, but that's a scary thought, I know, for a lot of you. Um, but with that, I just, I think there's a lot of possibilities. And one possibility is that Jesus helped Peter back up on the water, and they walked back to the boat together. Another possibility, I suppose, is Jesus helped Peter out, put him on his back, and piggybacked him to the boat. Or perhaps Jesus said, hey, you're okay, relax. And like a dog on a leash, he walked and Peter swam back to the boat. I prefer the first one, that they walked back. Peter, probably knowing Peter, spontaneous, was very discouraged and felt like a fool thinking, what do those guys in the boats think of me? And Jesus might have said something like, you know, Peter, you got out of the boat and you walked on the water. And they're all thinking, why didn't I try it? And it probably bolstered Peter, not that he needed it, but I think it encouraged, I think it was a, one of those little milestones in his life that he realized the hand of God is involved. And if I'm just willing to step out in faith, I can walk on water. I can do whatever it is that God needs me to do, whatever he calls me to do. I can do these things. And I think Peter's life was touched and impacted in this moment and other moments of the teachings of Christ and the experiences that he had. God's hand working in the life of Peter and the others as well impressing upon them how he is actively involved in their lives all the time, all the time. I think of um, a, a situation on a personal experience. Cindy and I were in Germany. Ben was a little guy um, and in a stroller, actually pretty close to the age of Elena. Um, and we lived in a building that was still being constructed, um, the house, and it wasn't far from a park. And we would frequent the park with uh, Ben in the stroller and, and Kyle and Caleb kind of buzzing around and doing what little guys do when they're out in the park. Um, and Cindy and I would just kind of wander along and, and try to absorb, man, we're in Germany. We hadn't been there a year yet at this time. And at this particular day, as we went out into the park, this path, all of a sudden, which was a normal path going through the park, which was seemed all normal to us, actually had been turned into a baseball field. And there was actually a, an effort to play some kind of scrimmage practice. I really could, it was sort of organized, but uh, kind of disorganized at the same time. But definitely was some kind of baseball event taking place. And I thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. And as I watched, I thought, wow, these guys need a lot of help. You know, they're, they're not really good. <laughs> and eventually, as we kind of walked, um, our kids got up on the, these merry-go-rounds and, and things that you climb up on, you fall off and break an arm and a leg and things like that. They were having a good time, Kyle and Caleb and, and Ben and stuff. And I was just kind of watching 
And Selena and I uh, were kind of paying attention. All of a sudden, a ball came bounding along out in our direction. So I kind of walked over, picked up the ball, and I just threw it back, you know. Just picked it up, and I threw it back. Now, again, it was a waste, quite a long throw, but I just chucked it back into the field. I don't think the ball even got to where I intended it to go before one of those people sprinted like crazy right at me. And I thought, what did I do? I didn't, I mean, it wasn't a game going on. I didn't interrupt a game. It was certainly a practice. I didn't ruin anything. And this guy came up to me and he said, you're an American. You play baseball. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm an American. I used to play baseball. And he goes, no, 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 you can help us. We are in such help. And this guy was an American himself, born. His dad was German. His mom was an American, but he was born and raised right in Germany. He was about 18 or 19 years old, Todd Covell. He had a dream to develop a great baseball franchise. And here's this young guy, 18 or 19 years old, had a dream. And that was his dream out there. And I thought, ooh, what a dream. <laughs> and, and so I thought, you know what, we're busy. Cindy and I are really busy. And I went back and I said, well, we'll talk about it. And Cindy and I talked about it. And Cindy, much more supportive in the idea than I was, felt, you know what, God gifted you as an athlete, why don't you go help these guys? They could use the help and we'll just see where it goes. And I was already involved with a professional soccer franchise on the other side of town. And, um, of course, then there's the normal mission work that you're doing, and you're working with church planning and teaching and children's clubs and all that all going on in German. And I thought, how is this going to work? But at least the baseball program was kind of in English. They all spoke English. They wanted the English terms and all that kind of stuff. All right, we'll give it a whirl, and we'll kind of look at it, and we'll experiment with it. And so for a while, um, they let me play on their reserve team. Um, and uh, as the year progressed and we went through the winter and into the spring, I found out about the Charlie Brown Baseball Tournament, which this franchise hosted. The name of the club, by the way, before I even got there, was called the Har Disciples. Go figure. Now, wasn't a Christian on that club, to my knowledge. Har Disciples, which was interesting to us. We kind of thought kind of funny about that. And the Har Disciples sponsored this baseball tournament, and there was four different countries represented, about eight different teams, and they had never won it. They had always kind of finished next to last or third to last last, even though they hosted the tournament. Crowds would come, watch the games. Nobody really knew what was going on because they didn't understand the sport, but there was beer and hot dogs and sausage and you name it. And so that drew crowds anyway. And they had a lot of fun watching people do something that they know that those kids were doing something that made sense to them. Even though they didn't understand it, they were there supporting it, having a good time watching this event. In this particular year, um, they moved me up to their, their number one team, and I could pitch only three innings. Now, I still threw near 90 miles an hour. Even though I was 30 years old, I was still in shape. And so they hadn't seen the likes of that ever. And so basically, I would face about three batters an inning, and it'd be done. And then the next thing, three batters would be done. But I could only pitch three innings, and I could catch one game, um, a one-hole game. I couldn't catch more than a game. And so there's a lot of stipulations put on North Americans participating in the sport. But anyway, it was a lot of fun, and we were actually winning some games. And it got to the point we were in the semifinals on this weekend, this big tournament. And the weather had been horrible all along. And as, uh, as I came up into the game, it had gone into extra innings. And the team from Switzerland, Zurich, Switzerland, had scored a couple runs in the top half. And uh, we were down by a couple runs. And God has a great sense of humor. Uh, I'm, I'm, I was quite, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to say it. I just was kind of embarrassed that I walk up to the plate with the bases loaded and two outs, and we're down by two runs. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. This is just crazy. I don't want to strike out. I don't want to get out. I don't want to. I didn't, you know, what's going to happen. And, and God orchestrates a three and one count, not three and two, sorry, baseball fanatics. 
But I hit a home run. I hit it, just clobbered this ball out of the park, you know. And everybody's going nuts. And, and I'm like, you got to be, Lord, I don't know why you're doing this. And I was really, and as I'm running around the bases, I was embarrassed. I was like, wow, that's cool. Embarrassed, cool, cool, you know. And as I came around third base, I'm looking down, and here's the whole gang of the team. They're just going like this. Yeah, 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 like this. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not number one, but okay, I'll do it. Yeah, I'm number one. You know, thinking, that's what they're thinking. How arrogant, you know, of me. Here they are. Think now. These, these kids, young men, have no clue, well, a minimal, but really basically no clue about who God is and Savior of Jesus Christ and those concepts. And as I come across that plate, thinking they're saying, we're number one, great job, blah, blah, blah. They're saying, look, you idiot, turn around and look. And there it was, a rainbow over the baseball field. And God had given us a sign. We didn't know at that point what God wanted us to do with this baseball program. And here I am, the Christian in the crowd, thinking, yeah, well, I'm number one. And here they are, the non-believers, saying, look, God's given you a sign. There's a rainbow. And it was really a humbling, teary moment. And where did that baseball program go from there? Fascinating things. Uh, we stayed with it right on through. Eventually, I could play no longer. I mean, I could have, but I coached my way out or played my way out to just coaching. Tom Kettlecamp came over and did clinics in Italy with us with these players. Um, the, the franchise continued to grow and win and move up. Today, that franchise still managed by Todd Covell is in the Bundesliga, the highest level of professional baseball in Germany. And they still run their tournaments and they still do their things. And I think, what an interesting thing. One other story from that, that program, one of those years that I was still playing, but I was playing less and less. I was out in the outfield and I noticed in a tournament, we're in a tournament game, there was a big banner over and it said John 316. I thought, you gotta be kidding me. John, there's Christians here, you know? And so when I ran off the field, I made a comment to Cindy. And she goes, oh, okay, I'll go find out about it. And so during the game, Cindy ran over and talked to the players or the people that were holding up the banner. And she goes, wow, are you guys Christians? They looked at her like, huh? And she goes, the banner. And it was, it was huge, people. I, I mean, it was big. It was a big, big banner. And she said, they said no. And she goes, well, that says John 3.16. Yeah. What's John 3.16? They asked her. She said, it's a Bible verse. And they just like, a Bible verse? What, what do you mean a Bible? And they were like nervous. What do you mean a Bible verse? And she goes, yeah, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That he, they had no clue. And she said, well, why are you holding up? She goes, well, we see it all the time on the TV and the sporting events, John 3.16. <laughs> and, and essentially, when push came to shove, a little bit of what they kind of thought was just a tradition that some kid named John was lost. Mom held up gate 316, our seat kind of thing. They didn't know at all. No, that's the environment that God brought us into with this baseball team. But she got to share the love of God with those people. Our baseball team was curious about the John 316. We won the game. We're at a, a Gosthof um, afterwards celebrating our victory. And I got to share with them John 316. Not that they hadn't heard it at different times, but they heard it in a totally different way. And God just gave us cool opportunities. God used his hand in mighty ways just to manipulate, move, teach, show whatever he needed to do to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. We did an Easter service we are talking about this yesterday in the van on the way back from um, the district conference. Cindy and I led an Easter sunrise service, although the sun had been up for a while, on the Adriatic Sea with 30-some-odd baseball players, of which a couple knew the choruses, but they all had a piece of paper and were willing to sing with us as we had an Easter service on Brianna's birthday way back when in 19, 
whatever that was. <laughs> and I just thought, how cool. All because I picked up a baseball and I threw it and I looked like I knew what I was doing. Um, and, and God just does phenomenal things. Think of Joseph. Let's go back to something a little bit more real and practical. Look at Joseph. Now talk about Father's Day. What a scenario. Jacob. Jacob thinks he's getting Rachel and he ends up with Leah. So he spends another seven years and ends up finally getting Rachel. But look at the jealous and envy and deceit in that family. Leah's producing children and Rachel isn't. And Leah, or Rachel's, or, yeah, Rachel's getting frustrated and, and upset and starts crying out and getting mad about things. And so she sends her maidservant to Jacob who has a few kids that way. And now Leah's not having kids and she gets really bummed and upset and mad. And so she sends her maidservant. So a few more are going. And then Leah has something that Rachel wants and Rachel really wants this item so badly she's willing to trade a night with her own husband, Jacob, so that Leah could go spend the night with him. But she gets her little toy that she wants and Oh, no, Leah has another baby. And it's just crazy, all the deceit and all the goofy things. And eventually, God blesses Rachel in the midst of all this. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of all this deceit and envy and jealousy, Joseph is born. And years later, Benjamin is born and she dies in childbirth. But take Joseph out of that chaotic scene of life. And then see what happens and just walk through what he... I mean, he was definitely a favored boy I was the youngest of four. I know what that's like. And I know how older brothers can get a little envious at times because dad didn't hit Kevin as much as he hit the rest of us or whatever it is that they thought was the truth, which they're far from the truth. I was treated just like the rest of them. But Joseph was obviously spoiled in their minds and to the point that they hated him and they wanted to kill him. Well, they didn't kill him, but they sent him off. They traded him off to slavery. He thought... Joseph is gone. Well, tell dad he got eaten up by a bunch of animals, but he's gone. (sighs) Life can be normal. We don't have to listen to him about dreams and all this other chaos. And yet God continues, and I won't take forever on this, but God continues to do phenomenal things in the life of Joseph. He goes to, as a sold into slavery, ends up becoming such a great slave that he becomes a servant and the headmaster servant to the house of Potiphar. Well, now in that process, rises up to another great position. And yet Potiphar's wife is kind of like, this guy's pretty cool. And thinking some pretty evil thoughts, like adulterous thoughts. And Joseph will have nothing to do with it. She gets really bugged and mad about it. Lies that he raped her and he gets thrown in prison because Potiphar can't believe Joseph would do it. But he can't, he's got a wife, you know, and he can't argue with that, you know. So he sends Joseph off to prison. In prison, I don't know what they call this guy, but he rises up as a prisoner to the point that he's a favored prisoner. And he is a servant and helps out the jail, jailer with all the other prisoners. And he, in that process, he's interpreting a, a couple of dreams um, while he's in the jail. And those guys get out and he's hoping they'd remember him about that, but um, they forget about him. And a few years later, the Pharaoh is having nightmares and, and struggling with things. And all of a sudden, I think it was the cupbearer, but whoever it was says, wait a minute. Oh, Pharaoh, there's this guy in prison named Joseph. He interpreted our dreams. He's really pretty good. Actually, he was spot on. I think you ought to listen to him. Maybe he can help you. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. He comes out of prison. 
He interprets the dream, talking about seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And the Pharaoh is really impressed. And, and Joseph came across very confident about what he's knowing and what God and why God's saying this to you is so that you can prepare uh, your land to go through all this nightmare when it comes. And, you know, he's just, God's giving this great opportunity. You need to get somebody in charge that can help organize all this stuff and take advantage of the seven years of plenty. Good idea, Joseph. You're the man. And he becomes second power to Pharaoh. It's just an amazing thing. God orchestrating, looking back through the life of Joseph, how he orchestrated things and events to the point that when seven years later, when the famine is happening and Joseph is standing there distributing and and a part of that process, he sees his brothers coming because they're out of food and they're hungry. And he doesn't have bitterness or rage. Uh, He has a little game he plays a little bit with him. But ultimately, when all said and done, he says to his brothers, This was all a part of God's plan. God knew this had to happen and God has been faithful and let's just praise God in this and the family is reunited. What a God we serve. Where are you in the process of your lives? Do you feel like it's an up and down day or week or month or year or whatever it is? God is faithful. He will not allow things to come up over you that are beyond your abilities, but if you would just turn to him, he'll help you through these events in your lives. He cares deeply about who you are. In March 14th, 2008, a tornado came through the city of Atlanta, Georgia. Pretty interesting story. It was the SEC, Southeastern Conference National Basketball Tournament. Well, actually, conference tournament, not national tournament. Alabama was a lowly team. It was actually the lowest seeded team that year. But they had a player by the name of Michael uh, Riley. And he was one of the best three-point shooters in the nation. Just played on a pretty poor team. And they didn't win but 10 games that year. But he was a believer. A genuine, full, bona fide Christian athlete. They exist. And he really believed in God. And he grew up in a godly family. With... Two seconds left in regulation, he was the go-to guy. He had a fair game, hadn't had a great game, but they turned to him and he caught the ball on the run. They tried to foul him because the game, they were down by three points and the other team figured if we foul him, he only gets two foul shots, we win the game. But they couldn't foul him and shot a 24-foot shot, which is a long way in basketball, fading out of bounds and it drops through and the game is tied and it sends it into overtime. About eight minutes later, a little more than eight minutes later, the tornado came right through that town, right through Atlanta, right by the dorm, shook the things. There's, you can look online and watch the video of the ceiling and things coming out of the rafters. It's estimated that several hundred, if not a few thousand people, would have been outside walking to the Omni Hotel and the, and the Westin Hotels right when that, ho- that tornado came right through there. And there's a great article written by Thomas Lake who takes the big picture of this saint, the shot that saved lives. <laughs> well, right, the shot that saves lives. What a coincidence. I would have to say it's more of a godsidence and not a coincidence in Michael Riley's life because Michael Riley grew up learning how to shoot like crazy and he was expected to be able to make that shot. That's why he was asked to make that shot. How did he learn to make that shot? When he was about seven or eight years old, his grandma's sister was murdered among three others in a very difficult area down in the south, in Mississippi, where he grew up. And with the the monies from the insurance settlements, she built an outdoor basketball court and caged it in so the ball wouldn't get lost. But it was a full-size court with three-point lines, lights, and everything. 
and Michael Riley played hours upon hours upon hours of basketball out there. And he could shoot crazy. He couldn't play defense. He couldn't do anything else. And he didn't even make his varsity team until he was a senior in high school. But he kept at it because he loved the sport. And he didn't even start. So nobody wanted him in college basketball. But he could shoot. He could shoot. He couldn't play defense. And a junior college, after two failures in junior college, a third junior college picks him up. And they had a program that just took advantage of his skill set. And he went on to become one of the nation's leading scorers at that junior college to the point that Alabama decides we need this guy in our team. When he graduated from junior college, he goes to Alabama, which then leads them into the scenario which they get into the game against Mississippi State where he shoots the final shot to put it in overtime to keep people inside the dome. God orchestrates things in ways we'll never know. We just don't know how things will come out. But we do know this. God is faithful and he is real. And he loves you. You think of the psalm that was read this morning from um, Bob Danner. And it talks about God, his, his love is so great. It's just so high. It's beyond our imagination. And he doesn't want to punish us for our iniquities and our sins. His love is so intense. And as far as the east is from the west, he separates us from our sin. We just need to understand that he loves us and his passion. He wants us to enjoy life to the fullest. Jesus said that in John 10, 10. I came that you may have life and live it to the fullest. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that the pagans are hungering after, whether you have enough food or clothing or all those things. I know you need those, Kevin. I know you need those. So I'll take care of that for you. Just seek me in my righteousness. And I'm gonna add that also. And when we seek God in his righteousness, The floodgates are open and experiences come into our lives that we can't comprehend and understand completely. As we we close, I I think of one last simple little story and uh, I managed to get through it this morning, so hopefully I'll get through it again this time. Um, About two years ago, most of you know that our son Caleb was killed in a car accident. And uh, this is, it was June 5th, so we've been kind of walking through those days as we go through the second year anniversary. And it's been, boy, it's been a bear for me, in all honesty. I've wrestled um, with a lot of things over the last couple of weeks. Um, he hit the magnolia tree that's in our yard in memory of him from a Cindy Stunning School class. had no leaves on it. And we thought it had died through this winter because the winter just wouldn't quit. And there was not a leaf on it. And then June 1st came and we saw little green things and it's got a bunch of leaves. Thank you, God. You know, we were just encouraged because... It's no big deal, but it is. It's a little thing that God just saying, yeah, the magnolia tree is blooming. We thanked him for that. And Cindy and I kind of smile when we see the leaves on there right now. But even more interesting, um, Cale was killed on June 2nd. On October, at the end of October, um, after his death, so about five months later, the Marine Corps had created uh, an award in his and another fellow Marine who was also killed, not in that accident, um, but they were close friends, uh, Lance Corporal Rivers and Corporal Caleb Austin. And the award is basically about small leadership and skill leadership sets that the Marines need when they go into battle and combat. And so this award was created with a picture. It is a huge plaque that sits down there on Alpha Company, one uh, first and second, or first, Alpha Company um, on their wall. And it's a big picture, or a big plaque with spaces. Every four months, they put the person who... Um, and their mindset shows and exemplifies the qualities of a small team leader as Caleb and Tom Rivers did. Their name goes on that plaque. There's a picture of Caleb and a picture of Tom Rivers. And so the very first award of that was this o- late in October. 
And so Cindy and I and Josiah drove down. Uh, Brianna was in school. She flew down the next day. And when we got on the way down, I, I, Cindy and I, I just, you know, the male testosterone in me said, I want to see where Caleb died. I just wanted to. I had to do that. And she said, well, we can do it. You know, she wanted, she was willing to take that risk and, and open up our hearts to that idea. So I called the West Virginia State Police and they said, yeah, actually there's construction going on. We can help you. It, it won't be too bad. Just give us a call as you're coming down through and we'll meet you and we'll take you over there. And so we did. On the way down, we were able to be driven over to right exact spot. And the person who escorted us there was the first person to respond to the accident scene. And he kind of just said, explained things and a little bit of what he had noted and seen and, and was aware of. And we did the the thing that I guess the parents would do where we were kind of just rummaging around the, the debris in the area, rocks and different items and wondering, did this belong to Caleb and Lindsay's car? I don't know. And, you know, and cried and prayed and, and eventually after 10 or 15 minutes said thank you and we drove back up, turned back around and came and went to North Carolina. Well, the next day or the day after as we were heading back home, I said to Brianna, would you like to go by the, the site? where um, the accident happened. And she said, could we? And I said, yeah, we could. It takes an extra few minutes, but it's worth it to me. If you want to go, I'm glad to drive those extra miles. Otherwise, you go through Washington, D.C., and that's a nightmare as it is anyway. So I'd rather go via West Virginia from North Carolina than through Washington, D.C. So we went. I didn't bother to call the West Virginia State Police because I already knew where the accident spot was exactly, precisely, and it was blocked off anyway because of construction. So we pulled in, we got out, and we did the same thing again. You know, you just heads down, you're kind of rummaging around, and everybody's on their own. Josiah's by himself, Brianna's here, Cindy's there, I'm over here. You know, what are you doing? You know, I don't know. And then I looked over, and I could tell Cindy was definitely shaken a little more than had been the last time. So I went over and she had tears in her, uh, streaming down her face and stuff. And she had this little piece of white cloth and she gave it to me. And on the flip side, it said Corporal Caleb M. Austin. And it was from a sea bag five months later, all the weather, all the odd things that could have happened. And there it was. And I remember thinking, wow, how good is God? And it brought a little finality to us, you know, and, not that I, I'm glad that that happened, but it, it helped. It just was a way of God touching us, saying, I know your pain. We love you. We drove on home a year. Um, so about uh, June of that next year, so on the anniversary roughly of his death, we had to go down to West Virginia again for court issues to deal with the final closure of the settlements, etc. And as we were leaving to come back up, it was just Cindy and I. She said, do you think we could swing by the accident site? And go, we have to go by there anyway. You want to pull off and just stop for a minute? I said, yeah. I, I was thinking the exact same thing, you know. And so as we go up and I came to the spot, impossible. Absolutely impossible. 70 mile an hour traffic going like nuts up that mountain. The shoulder isn't that wide. It's not a normal width shoulder. The beyond the shoulder is just chaos and sand and what a it just is no way to do it. And I was mad. I wanted to stop again and just spend time. We just went through the court hearings and all this stuff, and I was really frustrated. And then as I drove up the hill, God just touched me and he said, Do you realize? The miracle was that that construction was happening, that you could find a little white piece of paper or, or the cloth a few months back, Kevin. And I just, it just dawned on me how good God is. God knows the things that we need in our lives, the little things, the big things, or whatever they are. He cares. Cast your burden on Jesus, for he cares for you. Trust him with your heart. Allow him 
to just flow freely. And there are difficult days and there are wonderful days that you'll experience, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. Let him know that you appreciate the love of God the Father in your lives. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for those truths that you genuinely care about our lives. And you know what we're going through all the time. And yeah, we go through some pretty dark times. And yet, you're there with us. Never will you leave us. Never do you forsake us. So give us the courage, God, to look up and see you and reach out to you like Peter did in the water. And let us grab a hold of your hand, the hand of God, and and lift us out of the mire and to allow us to enjoy life and move on to the fullest. In Jesus' name. Amen.